To your congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. We'll begin reading with verse 12, and we'll read through chapter 6, verse 20. Hebrews 5, we recognize that Christ is that perfect high priest, and, and um, the author of Hebrews wants to go on to say more and to build him up in their faith of who this high priest is, but he has an observation at the end of verse 11, you have become dull of hearing. And because of that observation, he has, as he explains that observation in verse 12 to 14, He goes on to exhort them also in the need to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us hear God's word, Hebrews 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things which accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This anchor we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word and also add his blessing on the exposition of it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in Hebrews 5 we 
saw the author to Hebrews setting forth Christ as the only perfect eternal high priest, one who was after the order of Melchizedek. But before going into explaining exactly what that all means and entails, and all the blessings and the assurance that comes out of that, he wants to set forth the fact that he's addressing an audience who has become dull of hearing. And we are warned about spiritual immaturity. He's calling on them as babes versus those who ought to now be mature and full of age, who still need the milk of the Word versus the solid food of the Word. And Hebrews 6 here is continuing that line of exhortation by illustrating the need to move past the very foundations and the elementary principles to become more advanced, and to begin to build on those foundations. And so clearly in the context here, from Hebrews 5, verse 12 through the end of chapter 6, we are being called to mature, to, to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is for our good. And as we found at the end of chapter 5, this is so that we are able to discern both good and evil. We can discern the difference. Because the, really the number one problem in the world and in the church is a lack of discernment. And you can find this not necessarily only in our church or in Christianity Uh, uh, abroad, but it it begins already in Genesis chapter 3. It's been the problem for the church since the beginning of time. Satan came into the garden and and told Eve, uh, you could be God, and God's withholding things from you, and you could be able to discern good from evil, and, and she was deceived. And really, discernment is a problem because the number one problem in the world is deception. And why is deception such a concern? Or maybe I could ask, in the context of Christianity, why is the perversion or the deception of God's truth so concerning? Would it surprise you if I told you that the worst and most devastating form of evil and wickedness in this world is a perversion of God's truth? Would that surprise you? Maybe you're ready to object when I say something like that. And someone would say, Pastor, don't you know how many babies are killed in the womb? That is a horrific evil. Or haven't you been watching the news in this past week and what's happening in Ukraine? All the evil of this world. Don't you know about the history books about Hitler? Don't you see the wickedness that is sweeping our own land with laws regarding euthanasia and homosexuality and coercion? And your list could go on. And I have to say, yes, I have, and yes, I do understand. And yet, the foundation of all of these problems is a perversion of God's truth. It's deception. We live in a day when good is called evil and evil is called good. And the only way and the only answer to deception is to be able to discern between error and truth, good and evil. And to do that, we need to have doctrinal clarity on on the truths of God's Word. And that means we need to be in the Word of God And we need more than just the milk of the Word. We need the meat of God's Word. We need solid food. And we need to submit to the clear and accurate teachings of the Word of God. You see, a remedy for all of this is diligent, faithful study of the Word of God to be exhorted to grow and to know what the Bible is teaching. And I want to note a few things about our text before we dive into it, because our text doesn't present such an easy contemplation in the middle of it. 
but rather a very sober warning. And I want to I want to identify some things before we really dive into it. First of all, the author has identified the problem. And it's not just a problem that they are dull of hearing, as he says in verse, verse 11 of chapter 5. But this is a spiritual condition. It's not that the pastor has just been going on too long in the sermon, and now they become slow to hear, and it's just too much information. No, that's not the problem. The problem is a spiritual condition. It's a spiritual condition. They are still babes when they ought to be teachers. They're still drinking milk and needing milk rather than being able to digest solid food. And he calls them to wake up and to pay attention to the truths about Jesus Christ and to dig deeply into these truths that are vitally important for your hope, for your confidence in life and in death. He says, don't take these things for granted. You need to be challenged by these things and to be able to apply them to your life and to the various situations in your life. He's identified the problem. These are babes in grace when they ought to be teachers. It's a spiritual problem. And the author recognizes, secondly, the need for foundations. He does recognize the need for these foundations, but, but he wants and calls us to more. In the first three verses of chapter 6, he's saying, leaving this discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, we need to go on to perfection. We need to go past these elementary principles. We need to not lay again the foundations. The foundations are laid. We need to go on to greater things. What are these foundations? Well, the foundations are also important to the author, to the Hebrews, and to us today. The, the foundation of repentance from dead works and from our own sins and, and to put our trust and our faith in God. That's the first foundation. The second foundation he talks of is the doctrine of baptism. Baptisms, plural, actually. The doctrine of baptisms is going to refer to uh, all of the debate between the baptisms of the Old Testament, the baptisms of John, and as they would follow certain leaders. And and we need to come to a conclusion of the Christian baptism that Christ has, has given for his church as a sacrament. And yet we also have to know something of the baptism of the Holy Spirit when he regenerates us. And going on, he says that another foundation is a laying on of hands, of receiving the Holy Spirit, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, and the reality of eternal judgment. Yes, these are important foundations. These are the basics for the life of any Christian church. And he says, we will do this. We will make sure these foundations are there, if God permits. But we need to hear that same kind of exhortation today. Because as we look around our culture today, we, we often find much lacking. I'm not claiming to be a perfect preacher at all. It's not at all what I'm standing here doing. As a matter of fact, challenge me and test me in, in, in the Word of God as well. I make mistakes in preaching too. But much of preaching today, it doesn't even seek to lay the foundations any longer. Much less give any security to anything that's being built. Members of these churches are more interested in entertainment than in preaching. As long as the pastor is relevant and be able to really communicate with me as a comedian and a good storyteller, it doesn't really matter if he even exegetes and exposits the Scriptures. And so, therefore, people are exposed to all kinds of error and they go astray. He has a great concern about these things the author to Hebrews. And we should today as well. Yes, there is clearly a place for foundations and preaching. We have all different 
levels of people within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be building foundations. We even have what we would call concrete or construction companies within our own church who pour many foundations. But there would be a real problem, wouldn't there, if you poured all of those foundations for all of those houses and all of those businesses and no one ever built anything on them. You could be assured you're not going to be building very many foundations, are you? Because... Maybe the economy collapsed or whatever happened, but no one is building on them. Something's very wrong. Or let's use the example that's set before us in this passage as well of the elementary principles. Well, children, you can understand that too, right? You go to grade school or elementary school, and there you learn your primary subjects, your ABCs. You learn how to add and subtract, but, but you want to take that further so that you're able to then communicate with words and you're able to use addition and multiplication and, and mathematics to be able to run your business and to be able to apply these things to our daily life. And so you want to graduate from elementary and to be able to go on building upon these foundations whether it be in for their education or in the workplace. And the author is confident of these things. That's what we notice thirdly. Not only has he identified the problem and exposes the problem, but he also is confident that they will press on to better things. Hebrews 6, verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name and that you minister to the saints and do minister. What's he saying here? His confidence is not in just a, a kind of a confidence like I have a good feeling about you. I have, I, I have a lot of hope for you. You look like a fine young man or a fine young woman. No, his confidence is in something that is way past feelings. It's based on a past record of these Hebrew Christians. He has seen them already building to some degree on these foundations. And he wants to see it continue to grow. He wants to see those Christians continue to grow in love for one another and in their good works toward one another because these are things that accompany salvation. It's, a, it's an optimism that he also blends with a realism. And the reality is this, is that there are many who start well but never finished the race. And that was a sober thing for the author to Hebrew. And that ought to be a sober thing for us this morning as we look at our passage. The purpose of this exhortation is to call us to grow up and to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so we can properly discern to keep ourselves close to the Lord and to have a full assurance of the hope until the end. Is as we see here, the author to Hebrews wants us to have that in verse 11. He wants us to give diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end, that we not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And so therefore, although we could preach several sermons on chapter 6 here, I, I really want to bring it all together. Even though we're going to have a separate sermon on verse 9 through 20, uh, we're not going to be able to get into all of the detail of, of uh, the, and the, the blessedness of those verses, but but we need to see them in light also of this sober warning and the sober reality that burdens the heart of the author to Hebrews and burdens the heart of your own pastor. And so let's look at this with the theme exhorted to mature in grace. And first of all, we're going to see the sober warning 
And secondly, we're going to see the secure motivation. And we'll, we'll limit our time on the secure motivation. That'll be, that won't be a, a long point. It'll be a short point. But it will be expanded on in the weeks to come. First of all, then, exhorted to mature in grace through a sober warning. The sober warning that's set before us is found in verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and of the power of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in rain, that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. This passage is speaking of a word that we called apostasy. And we've already witnessed this already in Hebrews 2 of those who would drift away from these truths and, and those who would, would then not escape the judgment of God because they neglected such great a salvation. We've heard of this apostasy already in Hebrews chapter 3 where we were reminded, beware brethren lest there be any of you having an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's this warning, this real warning of, of apostasy, of departing from God, hardening their hearts, not hearing the voice of God and the Word of God, and to be led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. And to be warned of coming short of entering the rest of God, as we can find in Hebrews chapter 4. Notice in Hebrews 4 verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to come short of it. We've met this word apostasy over the past months already. And I told you in some of those occasions that I want to look at it in the context of Hebrews 6 more specifically. Because as we find the same type of language in Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 8, we also recognize it's within a context of calling them to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and to know that hope that's there for them in heaven for the anchor of their soul has ascended to heaven, and He is the Lord Jesus Christ. But still, we have a sober warning set before us. And if we look at this passage, we are faced with various interpretations of this passage. Some have decided to interpret this as those who were genuinely followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who repented of their sin and were now united to Christ and, and were actually active believers and then they fell away from grace. And that would be something that would be a dire warning if genuine Christians would fall away from their faith. However, we can rule out that interpretation when we compare Scripture with Scripture, which we're all called to do. Because we know from Scripture that That is impossible. How could Paul write to the Romans that we will, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord if we could fall away from grace? How could Jesus say, no one will pluck them from my Father's hand who come to me and who are given to me if we could fall away from grace? Grace. 
That's impossible if we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And we know that Scripture does not contradict itself. We'll look at that more later. The second option is to read the passage as a hypothetical warning. If indeed you would fall away, and and really, then it would be impossible for you to ever be saved. Well, the problem with such an interpretation is it's This passage is clearly not speaking of something hypothetically. There are those who did this. There are those who were once enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. And so how do we understand this real warning? Well, we understand that it's not a warning for those who are truly regenerate, those who are truly God's elect people. And he's very tactful and pastoral as he writes this to those who are hearing and reading it today and taking it to heart. We also recognize that he's speaking, notice how he says this, He says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. He's not saying for you who were once enlightened. He's not addressing them necessarily. He's addressing those who have left them. Even as we find in 1 John 2, verse 19, that there are apostates who have left the church and leaving the faith. They have showed they were really not part of it. And yet it comes as a real warning. Because he doesn't want these Christians to be doubting and tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. And he wants them to learn and to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, it's a caution. It's a real warning. Well, what really is apostasy then? I think it's good that we have a clear definition of apostasy. Because some would say that genuine believers can fall away and that would be apostasy. But, well, we would define apostasy as this. As someone who's appeared to be a Christian, maybe even a church member, and has received the blessings and benefits of the church, the preached word, the sacraments maybe even, discipleship, and then they have turned their back on God and the truths of God's Word. Maybe they've even demonstrated marks of the new life, having signs of regeneration, evident even in their life to some degree or another. They've they've maybe even verbally committed to identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him and with His people. They look like believers. They've understood something of the gospel because they've tasted God's good word and the power of the age to come. So they've understood it. And yet, they've had no true spiritual life. And they fall away. A relevant example in our day, and he's not embarrassed to say it, is Joshua Harris. Many of you probably even have books on his shelf. I'm not saying to discredit the books. They're biblical books. He was once well known for his engagement, faithful engagement even, with young people. He's written books on relationships, dating relationships. He became a celebrity power and now today has turned his back on God, turned his back on Christianity. And it's not embarrassed to say it. It can become a real challenge for those who think, how how could have I been so blessed by his book? And then he turns his back on God. Others, maybe they're not as evident and maybe even still claim to be Christians, have also departed from the true biblical Christian faith. Those Christians who have taken the world and mixed it with church. In other words, they're syncretizing the world with the church. They're maybe even syncretizing their own old traditions and faith 
their spirituality with Christian faith. They mix and blend it. Maybe this was part of the Judaizers' problem here, taking some of their old Jewish traditions and faith and blending it together with Christianity and say, this is a new religion. Or spiritual thought and spiritual advice from all sorts of different religious sectors and blending it all together and trying to find some form of truth in all religions And that is exactly what's impacting us in Western society. Even in Canada, where we live in a very pluralistic society. How much we also need to be absolutely clear on what the Bible teaches and what we believe as we are called to be witnesses in this world. One witness, a Christian witness, We need to be very clear. That's why we need to be in the Word, growing in grace, chewing on the solid food and the meat of God's Word. But there's also those who maybe even deliberately twist the Scriptures to pervert the Word of God to fit all of their own circumstances. That could be pastors, teachers, As they search for fame and power and influence in this world. And they want to preach in such a way that it would never offend anyone. Instead, the messages are inspirational messages rather than being messages based on the inspired Word of God. We find in 1 Timothy 4 that in those last days there will be men that come and will only seek to satisfy those who have itching ears. Lovers of themselves. 2 Timothy 3, we find another whole set of apostasy. And we see this also in our own day. With the Joel Osteens of our day that pervert the Word of God to fit a wealth and health gospel. The Joyce Myers of our day. The Eugene Petersons of our day. Who seek to twist the word of God into supporting those who struggle with LGBTQ. And who do not believe in the sufficiency of the inspired word of God. And then there are those who naively follow these wolves in sheep's clothing because they've never learned to digest the solid food of the Word of God and never matured into becoming discerning Christians. Well, how are we to understand such a warning? We are told that They have fallen away and they can't be returned. And in the current context of our passage, when he's addressing the Hebrews, those those Jews who, who had converted to Christianity and now have turned their back on Christ and went back into Judaism, how could they come to repentance again? That's the question. Can they? And the author's answer is it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. That's a hard word. But we need to realize that these people are not ignorant of what they are doing. And they knowingly reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And to know who Christ is and what He offers and still reject Him to To do so is to re-crucify the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. They pour contempt on Him, which is the equivalent to crucifying Him all over again. That's how serious such a sin is. 
And the illustration that follows this grave warning is, is to only highlight that these people truly have received all of the same blessings we all have. Notice in verse 7 this illustration of a garden. As he contrasts the very same garden that drinks in the same rain is bearing different fruit. Verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to be cursed, whose end is to be burned. This is a garden who all drank the same rain. And one bore forth fruit, receiving blessing from God, and another bore forth weeds that were cursed and burned. Well, let's try to put this all into one illustration into Israel. Israel who left Egypt in the Exodus. All were illuminated by the same fiery pillar. All tasted of God's same blessings. The manna that came down from heaven. The water that flowed from the rock. All came through the Red Sea. All could witness God with them in His temple, in His tabernacle. And yet, some perish because of hard hearts of unbelief. What a testimony of Esau, who was born with his brother, Jacob. We'll get to that in Hebrews chapter 12. But he was one who looked carefully, lest anyone, where we're called to look carefully, lest anyone would fall short of the grace of God. Because he, then he uses this illustration of Esau, who sold his birthright for a morsel of food. And yet afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. And, and he found no place for repentance, even though he sought it desperately, diligently, with tears. Or what about Judas? Who after betraying the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver, we see him in Matthew chapter 27 coming into the temple and saying, I have betrayed the innocent blood. And he cast the money before their feet. And in despair he went out and hung himself. Even though the passage said that he repented. Or what about Demas? who had forsaken Paul, as we read in 2 Timothy 4, because he had a love for this present world. It's a real warning throughout Scripture. And it should impact us today, who sit in the church of God. A warning of apostasy. Those apostates whose end is to be burned. That's the end of an apostate. The end is hell. And if it's that serious, we ought to be wanting to know and to grow and to mature, to be discerning. We ought to have a passion for the lost. We ought to have a passion for the wayward among us. Those who are in danger of apostasy are called to wake up today and to learn and to grow and to know and to mature. And when we see someone who's on the brink of falling off that edge, we need to be like Spurgeon, pleading with them. Pleading with them to stay. I just want to ask, as a congregation, have we been indifferent when it comes to church members who are backslidden and wayward? Have we been indifferent to family members who have been backslidden and wayward? Sometimes we excuse it and we say, if God has begun that good work in them, He will complete it. He will cause them to eventually come to their senses. Oh, we shouldn't be so judgmental. 
We could probably even piously say God hates the sin but loves the sinner. We've heard it all. But what if your children got married and they lived just down the road and you could see their house and from a distance you saw smoke coming up out of the roof and out of the eaves. I can't imagine any of you saying, well, I'm sure they're going to wake up before the fire gets too bad. I'm sure they'll come to their senses. Or maybe they already have the fire under control. Do we really believe what Jesus has said in his word? That it's more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you who were known a real warning for us today. I'm not just talking about the Joshua Harris's and the Joel Osteen's and the Eugene Peterson's and so on. As a matter of fact, I'm, I don't even care to judge all of these people. I'm not even qualified to do so. I'm not called to judge the countless celebrity theologians out there today. My work and my calling is to instruct you faithfully from the Word of God and to equip you to be discerning, to provide you with information when you ask about the faithfulness of a particular individual so that you can discern for your own self. And at the same time, I'm called to press, to call you to press on in that growth and grace. To examine yourselves and to be on guard. Not just taking my word for it or anyone's word for it. But learning to be discerners of our times according to the word of God. Maybe you'd like me confess I need to, to know this discernment more. I need to be clearer in my theology. I need to be in the word more. Well, that's why I want to end with calling you to that secure motivation, that better estimate that he has for his hearers at the end of this chapter. I'm just going to touch on two points in it. He's calling them, notice, he wants to motivate them because there's better things that are expected of a true Christian. And he wants to tell them the secret of growing is to be in the Word and to be imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God we find in verse 12. We're called not to be sluggish, but to be in His Word, to be believing His promises. And then he goes on to show how secure, how secure we are when we are in the Lord and in His Word. Notice Notice in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, he could swear by no one greater, so he swears by himself. And God makes a promise. He swears by himself because there's no one greater than God. And his promises are sure. Men have to swear by a greater because... They're not very good promise keepers. But God swears an oath by Himself. He's an oath giving, an oath keeping, a promise giving, and a promise keeping God. And God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. He cannot go back on His word. He cannot change His mind. And so when God says to us, And He's given us His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. We can take that promise to the bank. We can hold on to that promise. We can know that promise. 
When Jesus says in John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. We can hold on to that promise. And those who come to him in faith and repentance, he will in no wise cast out. We can never be cast out from the presence of the Lord when we have a a contrite heart and a right spirit within us. We can know, as Jesus says in John 10, verse 37, that all that the Father has given to me, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We are secure in the death grip of our Father who is in heaven. He will never let us go despite our foolishness, despite sometimes being immature and sluggish. We can say, Lord, increase my faith, as the disciples said. Or we can know, as Paul did in Romans chapter 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he could also know that he could never be ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And if it's the power of God unto salvation, as Peter says, then we have received an incorruptible word that will never fade away and an incorruptible hope that will never fade away. And it's laid up in heaven for us because we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That's the hope. Our hope is secure in heaven. And in this wilderness below, as we go through it, we can know that He is with us and He has given us His Holy Spirit. Hasn't He even promised that? When He says, ask and it will be given, knock and it shall be opened to you. In Luke 11 verse 13, He says, you even know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will my Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? As Jesus ascends to heaven, and before he even goes to the cross, he promises the Holy Spirit, another comforter, one who would guide them into all truth, one who would bring the word of God and the promises of God to our mind to convict us of sin and of unrighteousness and of righteousness. He is the one who will lead us and guide us by his word. And when we're in the midst of distress, we can know that He's promised He will never leave us nor forsake us. And even as He ascended to heaven, He promises to be with us even to the end of the age. Because there He is in heaven. That's what the author to Hebrews says. We have a strong consolation in verse verse 18. Because we have fled to the refuge And lay hold of the hope that's set before us. That hope that is the anchor of our soul. That hope that is sure and steadfast. That hope that is in the presence of God behind the veil. In the holy of holies. There is our high priest. Who is a king. Who reigns over all things. Who is a high priest. Who identifies with us. He has gone there first as our forerunner to prepare a place for us that our souls could be anchored in heaven. That's that's where we're going. That's where our hope is when we're a true Christian. And when we're in danger of drifting, when we're in danger of apostasy, The answer is to have our anchor in heaven and to be clinging firmly to that hope that's in our sovereign King who reigns over all things. That's where you will find security. That's where we'll find the anchor for our soul. The anchor for those who have gone away and fallen away Their anchor was in man. Their anchors were in material. In their own works. Maybe even in the church leaders of their day. 
Maybe also in their parents. Maybe even in politicians. But there you will continually be disappointed. Yes, you will even be led astray. But when we go back to his promises, and we take those promises back to God, and he promises never to let us go. And he promises to give us the grace to never let the Lord Jesus Christ go because he is the anchor that is sure and steadfast. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're faced with a solemn, sober warning in your word. Grant us grace as we leave this place to be encouraged also in your promises and in the Lord Jesus Christ and be equipped to go and to care for those who are wayward and backslidden. That we would bring the word of God, the promises of the gospel, the healing balm, directing them to the Lord Jesus Christ, warning them, of the danger to come if they fall away. Oh, Lord, we pray, knowing that in maybe most of our families, there are brothers and sisters who have grown up knowing the truths of your word knowing the hope of the gospel and have turned their backs and have gone their own way. Others who have maybe even went their own way, twisting your word to fit their lifestyle. Oh God, have mercy and be mindful of your covenant mercies. And bring them back. Open up their eyes. Be pleased also, Lord, to use us to do so. And Lord, if there's anyone here sitting before us and with us who does not know you in truth, Lord, empty themselves of any hope or any confidence they have. Show them the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. For what would it be, O Lord, to fall into the hands of you with whom we all have to do? We all have to give an account. We have heard this warning. And we pray, O Lord, that each one of us would be united on that last day to your judgment, welcomed into the joy of the Lord because of your work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.